Hello, true crime friends. Welcome back to another episode of True Crime in Academia. I am your host, Mary DePippi. First of all, I hope you are all having a wonderful week so far. If not, that sucks. I hope it gets better for you. Second of all, I have some housekeeping to do. The first order of housekeeping is a trigger warning which I know I haven't done in a while, mostly because I'm kind of like, well, this is a true crime podcast, so like you can kind of like expect that. But I figured I should really, moving forward, just give a little bit more of a trigger warning. So the trigger warning for this week's episode is that there will be descriptions of crime scenes, as usual. Um, Also, violence against women and sexual violence. Second order of housekeeping business is that this podcast is strictly educational and I do not condone any of the actions that I'm about to tell you in the next like two minutes, which I feel is obvious. But again, just want to throw that out there just in case any of you are confused. Also, uh, don't forget to become a patron by going to patreon.com slash ivorytowerboilerroom and becoming a member. Starting in the summer, I will have some extra special content goodies for you all. So in order to get your hands on that, you have to become a patron, okay? Also, don't forget to follow True Crime and Academia on Instagram and TikTok at True Crime and Academia. And it looks like that is all of the housekeeping business I have for you today. So this week's episode is actually a case, or actually two cases, that were solved rather recently. And actually one of the cases has not gone to court yet, but we will talk about that in part two. But anyway, yeah, I thought this was really cool. It's always interesting to me to see how DNA and genealogy come into play and help identifying these old serial killers from DNA from the evidence and stuff like that so it's really cool like I said to see how some of these old cold cases are now being solved because of it and that's exactly like this case that we're going to talk about like I said it's going to be two parts so this week we're going to cover some basic background on the perpetrator and a little bit about the possible factors that could have led him down this Very violent path of sexually motivated murder. So with that, let's get into it. On February 13th, 1973, police discovered an abandoned 1972 orange Chevrolet Nova parked at the gate of a quarry in Los Altos Hills, just off of Interstate I-280. And that property, just to clarify, was owned by Stanford University. But they were unable to locate the car's owner, Leslie Perloff. Her mother had heard from Leslie earlier that day saying that she was on her way home from work, but Leslie never showed. Three days later, her body was discovered under an oak tree west of where her car was discovered. She had been beaten and strangled. 
A year later, on March 25th, 1974, a truck driver named Ernesto Evangelo saw something unusual during his morning milk delivery route, which was near Stanford's campus. He pulled over and discovered a woman's lifeless body in a shallow ditch. She had been beaten and was strangled. It was the body of Janet Taylor, the daughter of Stanford University's athletic director and football coach, Chuck Taylor. Her body was one mile from where Leslie Perloff's car had been found. Both Perloff and Taylor's cases went cold for almost 45 years. But before we get into the actual crimes themselves, let's talk about the perpetrator or the alleged perpetrator. John Catrue was born on August 26, 1944 in Newark, Ohio. He was considered to be an army brat as his dad was a sergeant in the army. They moved to an army base in West Germany when Gatru was young and seemed to live there for most of his childhood from what I was able to find. I couldn't find out much more about his childhood or his family life, but it seems that he did have siblings, but as far as how many, I don't know. Gatru's first crime occurred in 1963 when he was around 18 years old. Gatru had offered to walk home 15-year-old Margaret Williams, an army chaplain's daughter who was also living there on the base. And she was coming from a dance that they had had in Bad Krisnach. Krisunach? I'm sorry, I cannot pronounce this. <laughs> but anyway, it's an area in Germany. And when Margaret didn't return home, her younger brother, Evan, Evan Williams, said that their father drove to the youth activities building there and found out that she had left for home five minutes before that he arrived. When he got back home and she still wasn't there, he had hoped that maybe she had just stopped somewhere because it had started raining. When she didn't come home around midnight, the Williamses began to worry. Her body was found an hour later, around 1.11 a.m., and it was discovered that she had been raped. So I found one source that gave a description of this crime, and it's from Getru. And it says that he was interested in Margaret, though he had never met her before, but that the two of them decided that they were going to go for a walk. And then they lied down on a patch of grass on a playing field on his jacket and, you know, started fooling around. But she did not want to have sex. Williams was obviously distressed and started speaking loudly which made Gertrude mad. So he hit her once on the neck and then once on the face before covering her head with his coat. He goes on to say that she fought back, so he strangled her. At this point, he was convinced that she was still alive and that she was just unconscious, but then he went on to rape her. When he spotted headlights, he grabbed his coat and went home. He claims that he was under the impression that she was still alive. But I kind of want to call bullshit on that. I mean, it's not like it takes a rocket scientist to figure out if someone's breathing or not. You know what I'm saying? Like, you can see the chest rise and fall. There's a mirror trick. You know, you put, you know, or you could just feel under her nose, see if she's fucking breathing. <laughs> like, he raped her. He was clearly close enough to her to be able to tell if she was breathing or not. So, again bullshit I'm calling bullshit on that and I kind of think that he knew that she was dead but figured that it would look better to just admit to the rape 
but then say that you think that she was still alive. This report also said that he claimed that after he got home, he took his dog for a walk in the area, again, to check if she was still alive. Again, I'm calling bullshit on this because it ne- he never says that he actually saw her and was able to actually check if she was alive. But also, like, I don't think he... It's not sounding very concerning. Like, if you were concerned that she was dead... Wouldn't you have done that before you left? And I mean, I understand the flight, the fight of flight response is different for everyone. And clearly he knew he was doing something wrong when those headlights came up. I mean, obviously he was raping her. So, I mean, we know he was doing something wrong. And so did he, obviously, why he fled. And I, and even if you, okay, so say in a world where, let's just, let's entertain the thought that he didn't, he really didn't know, even though I find that very hard to believe. I don't think him going back there to see if she was alive was out of any sort of concern for her. I think it's possible it could have been one or two reasons. I think, A, he wanted to see if he had really killed her. Like, if that was something he had really, really done. Which, again, would fit with him not knowing. Or, B, he went back there to see if she had been discovered or if he had left any evidence but like I said either way I think him going back to quote-unquote see if she was alive was all about him and had nothing to do with Margaret to see if she was okay so eventually police tie him to this murder and Gatru was tried actually as a juvenile not an adult and in 1964 he was sentenced to 10 years in prison but he was released in six and again this is, and I mean, I understand again, he is being tried as a juvenile. So obviously the sentencing is less, uh, less harsh than it would be, but he was 18, like, or maybe just about to turn 18 at the time. He was definitely 18 when he, or no, he was 20 when he was sentenced. Cause if he was born in 44, you know, do the math, he should have been 20 by then. So the fact that he was tried as a juvenile really doesn't make any sense to me. Especially since he was supposed to be like 18, 19 at the time that he committed these crimes. So again, why he was being tried as a juvenile, I don't understand. It does not make sense. But anyway, he was. So hence why he was only given 10 years for raping and murdering a 15-year-old. Anyway, so yeah, he served six of his 10 years, which is, again, a fucking joke. But the following day... Germany, like the country, was just like, you need to go back to the United States. And he was sent home that day, the following day after he was released. And at that point, you know, everyone kind of just treated those crimes as if they never happened. Which is just like, why? Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, true crime friends. You've heard me talk about my amazing friend Mandy before. She makes the best crochet, cre-cut, and custom home decor for reasonable prices. If you're looking for a -a one-of-a-kind gift 
or some new decor to add some new life into your home, look no further. Mandy has got you. I have quite a few items from her, ranging from a crocheted headband to Halloween decor items to my amazing and adorable Coraline ornament. Um, if you guys haven't noticed, I'm like obsessed with Coraline and I just love how Mandy makes it. She's also made me a Coraline doll that sits next to all of my true crime books. To order, just slide in her DMs on Facebook and Instagram at Mandy Made It. That's M-A-N-D-E-E Made It on Facebook and Instagram. Once again, go to Mandy Made It on Facebook and Instagram. Send her a DM and order today. So later that year, 1969, just released from serving six years in prison for rape and murder of a 15-year-old girl, Gatru was suspected in the attempted murder of a 19-year-old named Sharon Lucchese. However, he was never arrested or convicted, but Sharon did identify Gatru as the man who had attempted to abduct, threaten, and strangle her. I tried to find out more information on this case, but sadly, this was all I can find. Around the time of Sharon's attack, Katru had gotten married to a woman who had a daughter. And his stepdaughter alleges that she was sexually abused by him and he threatened her if she told anyone. Now, John Katru had presented himself as this loving husband and stepfather who was a Boy Scout leader, you know, trying to be the whole American dude. But that was not the case. His stepdaughter states that, or ex-stepdaughter, states that he started molesting her from the time she was six up until she was 14. She's quoted saying, basically, he makes me touch him and tells me that if I tell anyone, he will hurt my mother. And I believe every word he said because he made it very clear to me he had that power. Now, his stepdaughter had never told anyone, obviously, because as she just said, <laughs> she was very scared. And she had thought that the only thing that was going to save her <laughs> from him was him dying. Which, again, is just so sad that <sighs> she had to go through that. I mean, it's bad enough living with someone who is a murderer and rapist and now... Now this, it's just so sad. Now that marriage came to an end in 1977 after his wife caught him molesting her daughter. I have her full statement and I'm leaving her name out, both names out just because, I mean, the stepdaughter was a child at the time. And even though she's come out and says her name and her name was mentioned in this article for the respect of her privacy and her mother's privacy, if her mother's still alive, that is. I, I'm just going to leave it out. If you want to look up and find out who these people are, sure. However, you know, I'm just trying to respect their privacy. So to kind of paraphrase what she says, um, what she's quoted saying as to what happened on the day that her mother caught him. Uh, she says, the day my mom walked in on John Catru molesting me was probably the most uncomfortable horrible experience of my entire life but at the same time it was the best day of my life because finally my mom knew what was happening and she would stop it which again is so oh I, I feel so horrible for her that's just 
Ugh. I can't even imagine. Now, her mother never filed any charges against her ex-husband, and he was never charged in relation to his stepdaughter, meaning that she didn't even come back as an adult or at any point and press charges against him. So, essentially, he, you know, he got away with it. Now, I kind of want to take this moment to kind of speculate the psychology, I guess, behind Gatru. Uh, One of the things, and I'm sure I've talked about this before, but one of the things that interests me most about true crime is the psychology of someone who can commit these types of crimes. And so I have done some research, but I just, like I said, I just kind of want to speculate because I feel like there's always a reason. Like, I don't feel like, even if it's uh, medical, you know, I don't feel like anyone is just like this or this evil and this careless with the lives of other people. So, you know, like I said, I just kind of want to speculate as to what could be some of the possible causes for why all this went down. But I do want to remind everyone, I have no proof as far as like from, you know, get true or any files or anything like that. And that these are literally just speculations that I'm making based off of my knowledge of criminals and true crime. So here we go. One possibility, I think, is that Gatru was abused as during his childhood. And it, I feel like it's no surprise to anyone that parenting styles during the time that he was born were not all butterflies and rainbows with Mommy Susie Homemaker. You know, many serial killers that were born around the same time as him, they were physically and emotionally abused by their parents. And that's because during this time in a lot of homes, hitting your child or yelling at them was just standard parenting. Now, obviously, I'm not trying to blanket coat that and say that every victim of parental abuse, which I'm not sure if parental abuse is a term, but if not, I am going to make it one right now. But, you know, not that every victim of parental abuse becomes a serial killer or that it sets them up to be violent killers or just violent people. You know, as I've talked a lot on this podcast, you know, everyone deals with their trauma differently. And in many cases, the victims of parental abuse do not go on to be violent offenders. But when you really think about it, like the psychology of it and all, it kind of makes sense why those who go on to commit violence do just because I think this idea of violence and love becomes normalized in their brains. Because when you think about it, you know, society is telling you that your parents love you the most and they love you the best, right? So if you're a child who's being verbally and physically abused by your parent, Although it doesn't feel good in a little child's brain that can cross the wires and making them associate violence with love and later violence with sex. In some cases. Not saying all. But I'm, you know. So, so like, I can see how those signals are getting crossed. And then also, like, again, you know, as they grow older and start to grow up, 
it's negatively going to impact them because they're starting to realize the differences between their peers' relationship with their parents versus their own relationship with their parents. And that can cause a lot of anger, a lot of resentment, sadness, depression, all of the things, you know, because in some ways it's like having your world shattered, you know, even though your life at home isn't great up until a certain age, that's all you know. And so you think it's normal. So when you start to realize that that's not normal and that what your parents are doing is wrong, it can be really confusing and really upsetting for a child that young. So, like I said, that could be a reason. And again, like I said previously, obviously not all victims of parental abuse come out this way. But I can see how that becomes a breeding ground for serial killers. Another possibility is that Gatru was sexually abused as a child by most likely someone close to him. Statistically and sadly, when it comes to sex crimes, especially sex crimes against children, the abuser is often someone that they know and trust. And again, that is just, ugh, it's already bad enough when it happens to an adult But for a child who, again, their brain is still forming, they're not understanding fully what's going on, that it's it's just horrible. And it's just a complete, not only just abuse of power, but a betrayal of trust to like the worst degree. I mean, it's just horrible. And sadly, a lot of statistics point out that children... Victims of sexual abuse often go on to become sexual abusers themselves. And again, this is not to say that this is not a blanket statement. I'm not saying that every child or every person who is sexually abused goes on to become an offender. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying in most cases, this happens. And it would explain the sexual violence, the extreme sexual violence that Katru exhibits and we will see more in the next episode. The third possibility I could think of was that either he had some sort of mental illness, like antisocial personality disorder, or that he sustained some sort of severe brain injury. Now, when I covered the Gainesville Ripper, if you remember, I discussed how brain injuries can cause violent outbursts or violent tendencies, violent impulses, things like that. So, if he was hit enough on the head as a young kid, that could have caused some rewiring. If he did have a mental illness where he lacked empathy and and, um, compassion for others, then I could see how that bled in. And, you know, this is not a one-size-fits-all. I'm not saying that it's any of these. I'm also not saying it's none of these. It could very well possibly be any one of the reasons I listed or speculations that I listed. Or it could also be a combination. And as of right now, there is no information about Gatru's childhood or, you know, what could have motivated him to commit such violent, sexually motivated murders. Well, that was a lot for today. A lot of really hard stuff. 
So that's where I'm going to leave you at with this case right now for the Stanford murders. Next week, we are going to pick up with the two murders that occurred on Stanford's property. And I'm going to get into the lives of his victims because they deserve to be told. I mean, sometimes a lot in true crime, you hear more about the killer than you do about the victims. And... You know, I think it's important that we highlight the victims and share their stories and make them seen as people, not just victims or bodies found. So with that, my darlings, I will see you next week. Again, don't forget to become a patron by going to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. And also don't forget to follow True Crime and Academia on Instagram and TikTok at True Crime and Academia. And until next week, my darlings, I will see you later. We hope you enjoyed this Ivory Tower Boiler Room or True Crime and Academia episode. You can watch our video versions of our episodes on patreon.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Join at the price of an iced coffee or join as an Ivory Tower member and get some of our exclusive merchandise. I could not be here without an amazing team. So I'm Andrew Rimby, the executive director, and I am joined with Mary DePippi, our chief contributor, who hosts True Crime and Academia. It comes out on Tuesdays. Jaren Usta is our marketing director, and our two interns are Nicole Arguello and Kimberly Dallas. And I'm actually here with Mary. So Mary, where can they follow us on social media? You can find us on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. On Twitter, we are at Ivory Boiler Room. And then just search the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on Facebook and you can like our page there. Wonderful. And we, Mary and I and the whole team, hope you all are healthy and happy. And we can't wait to join you and you know, have you all join us in the ivory tower boiler room next week. Bye everyone. Bye.